Praise be Jesus Christ. Now and forever. Friends, this is a really special day for this podcast because I'm joined here by my friend Lisa from Portland, Oregon. Well, originally from here, mm -hmm. but now visiting from Portland mm -hmm. at St. Patrick's. So, hi, Lisa. Hello. <laughs> this is an extra special guest episode of the morning walk. It's also special because it's about seven o'clock at night and we're not walking. So actually this should be what, the evening tea time? Or yes. We're having our tea right now. Evening tea. Evening, <laughs> evening tea. <laughs> the with, drink of my people. With Lisa. <laughs> yes, that's right. You're 88% yeah. British. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> it's unique. Mm -hmm. Well, because this is such a special episode, I thought that rather than just rambling on about my life this week, what we could do is ask each other a question and see if that sparks us in a conversation. So, Lisa, I have a question for you. Yes, please, go. Yes, here we go. <laughs> Lisa, there are many amazing things about you, hmm, but you. two of those amazing things are that you entered the Catholic Church, uh, how many years ago now? Uh, three three years, years ago. On the Feast of Christ the King, yeah, so we're fantastic. like coming up on Almost the Almost on the anniversary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. So you entered the Catholic Church at St. Stephen's Parish, which is my adopted parish mm -hmm. in Portland, which is also a very amazing and unusual parish for a number of reasons. <laughs> it's a fantastic place. Yes. But, um, you know, right, right now in the church, as you might be aware, there's kind of an ongoing dialogue, a narrative, you might say. We just finished the Synod on Young People and uh, Discernment in Rome. The bishops of the church came together with young people to talk about how to make the faith more relevant to the young, how we can communicate our faith to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the discussion going on is talking about, um, you know, the faith is, is not being presented to young people in a way that they respond to, that young people are concerned about authenticity. They're not looking for truth to be preached to them. They don't like to be condescended to. They'd rather be accompanied. They don't, they don't necessarily like the way that we're presenting the faith. At the same time, this is not necessarily a new development, but ongoing, something that I hear a lot, um, especially from people who are outside the church looking in, is this complaint that the Catholic Church is anti-woman, you know, we're, we're anti-feminist. Women have no roles of authority. They have no leadership in the church. The church is part of the patriarchy, a tool of oppression. You, know, you hear this kind of thing, especially here in the Bay Area mm -hmm. and, and in Portland. You hear it all the time. So. Taking all of that as the context for my question, you chose to enter the Catholic Church almost three years ago now mm -hmm. as a woman, young woman, coming from a Protestant background. So presumably, I think, with a number of biases uh, about the Catholic Church, it had to be overcome yes. in the process of conversion. And you have a fascinating story. I, I've heard a lot of it. And I know some of it firsthand. Mm -hmm. But my question for you is this. Um, we hear these kind of proposals going on at the Youth Synod, like the church needs to present the faith in a way that's less doctrinal. We need to sort of back off on the truth a bit, um, you know, engage in a process of dialogue. And at the same time, we have these complaints from those outside the church. We need to have more women in positions of authority, mm -hmm. change the structure of the church, etc. So coming from your background, Lisa, um, do you see a difference between how people treat you or respond to you as a woman in the Catholic Church mm. versus when you were a Protestant. <clears throat> and as a corollary to that question, um, how would you respond to some of these proposals about the need to change the church? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, it's like, it feels like there's two questions there. At least. At, le <laughs> <laughs> at 
at least. <laughs> um, so uh, to address, oh golly, yeah. Okay, so to address uh, the issue of, oh, well, my ex- to address my experience of uh, Protestantism versus Catholicism and how I, as a woman, was treated in both. Um, is treated a good word? I guess, yeah. How was it treated? Um, in Protestant, first I must say that in Protestantism, I didn't uh, know any better. S- sorry, before, before yeah. you're gone, what, what was your Protestant background? Oh, good call, yes. Or? Um, sort of. Yeah. Uh, so Christian Missionary Alliance was, I'd say, the main driving denomination um, behind everything, uh, which is Calvinistic in its roots. Um, and... Then, uh, as I got older a bit, I had some experiences. I dabbled in uh, charismatic parishes, huh. so huh. I had some of that too. I actually say that um, I don't know if I could have become Catholic if I hadn't been charismatic for a bit. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I only say that because, I mean, Eucharistic miracles, saints. Like, yeah, yeah, The yeah. Catholic Church has a lot of things oh, that totally. are quite crazy about it. Um, charismatic, like Pentecostal? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And so... Uh, being open to the movement of the Holy Spirit in mm. in Pentecostal circles helped me to be open to the idea that uh, a piece of bread becomes the body of Christ. Nice. So that's so cool. Yeah. Um, so that that's my background. But I'd say for the most part, most of my life was this kind of Calvinistic, uh, non-denominational, but based on um, Christian Missionary Alliance sort of. Uh, so, uh, and then also something that should be noted is I studied at a Protestant university mm-hmm. up in Portland. Um, I got my bachelor's in Bible theology and journalism, and then I also ended up going to the Protestant seminary there and getting my master's in pastoral studies. Um, so very steeped in sure. Protestantism. And one of the only women at Seminary. Really? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Is that still the case now? You, you still work at that university, I right? I do still work there. Yeah. And actually, uh, this last incoming class, um, the, the scale started to tip a bit, and we had a lot more um, mm. women coming into the seminary uh, when historically that wasn't the case. Hmm. So in this Protestant seminary. So you're really uniquely positioned to talk about like this issue. <laughs> yeah. This is great. So I was yeah. like, oh yeah, this, okay. Uh, so my, uh, my experience in Protestantism as a woman was uh, the church, the main church that I was raised in uh, and kind of grew in my faith in uh, didn't allow women to be elders, didn't allow women to be pastors, mm-hmm. And so I, I grew up very comfortable with that, uh, and I never felt I'm. I was never. I'm just in general. I'm not one to uh, rock the boat anyway. Mm-hmm. So even if it had been more oppressive, I probably wouldn't have thought twice about it. Uh, but that's just my personality. Uh-huh. I'm go go with the flow to a fault. Anyway. Um, so when it comes to my experience is there wasn't much women could do. Women could be secretaries if they wanted to serve the Lord. They could be missionaries hmm. or they could marry a pastor. Uh, and that was kind of the role women had uh, growing up. The pastor's wife would have a big yes. part in the community? Yes. The okay. pastor's wife would have a big part. That's interesting. But uh, they, 
they wouldn't have a, a role or a position of authority. Okay, okay. Other than to be the neck of the pastor, so potentially turn his head. Like you know, <laughs> sometimes the woman okay. is the neck of her husband, and she yeah. helps her husband turn his head. Um, in, in other words, women hold a lot of power in relationships. But still. sort of invisibly. Invisible or, power. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> women have invisible power. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> But, uh, That'll be but, the tagline for this podcast, by the <laughs> yes, way. Yes, women have invisible <laughs> power. Um, so, uh, so coming into Catholicism, my perception was always that uh, women weren't important in Catholicism any more than they were in Protestantism. Mm. Uh, and just, it, oh, go ahead. You just saw it as a continuation of the same. Yeah, I I, I assumed that it would be a continuation of the same. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's a better way of saying it. Um, so my experience uh, entering into the Catholic Church, or at least initially just to the Catholic community, getting to know Catholics, getting to know priests, uh, was different. Uh, I, I had a different experience as a woman. I had priests who uh, talked to me and said they were um, encouraged by me. Uh, I had met one priest, Father Luan, uh, who uh, I met him at a Vespers evening um, at his parish, uh, his old parish, St. Brigida's. And then uh, a couple weeks later, I came back and he, he said, you know, I've been really thinking about you and I'm just inspired by the fact that you as a Protestant would come and join us as Catholics. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, what? You're a Catholic priest. I'm just some girl. Like, how am I inspiring you in any way possible? Um, because I, I had this idea that priests were other than, uh-huh. like, they weren't like us. Uh, and so then fast forward, I'm, I'm getting plugged in. I'm getting involved at St. Stephen's. Uh, I'm still not Catholic. I uh, am learning a lot. I'm attending everything. I'm asking lots of questions. I'm an RCIA. And our priest at the time, Father Boyle, said, hey, let's start a, a young adult ministry. Uh, Lisa, I'd like for you to be in this leadership team, kind of setting it up. And I said, but I'm not Catholic. And he said, well, you know, you're, you're practically Catholic. Well. You're on your way. Um, and he knew. As far I mean, as you know, Lisa, you're not Catholic. <laughs> Pretty much. That's what everybody kind of said. I'm like, but I'm not. Well, you know, you're almost there. And, uh, and then... The other thing he said is he said, well, you've been, you've been trained in this, haven't you? Mm. And I said, yeah, I have. And he said, well, then you, you have things to say. You have experience, and we mm. want to hear what you have to say. And uh, that, that was shocking to me. Mm. Um, and I, did, I think in that moment I didn't realize how uh, maybe silenced I felt in Protestantism mm. because... I finally felt listened to in Catholicism, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that for me as a woman, that was a huge moment. I was I was respected for what I knew and not silenced because of my gender. And that's kind of how I always felt in Protestantism. I always felt like I had to fight for a voice. I, I, I had to fight to have my voice heard. Mm. And... Uh, I remember even this happened in seminary. Um, I was in a, a church ministry class. I was the only girl in the church ministry class, and uh, which is it's fine. Um, I actually get along really well with guys, and so I didn't think twice of it. But at one point, they were talking about women in ministry, 
And I remember increasingly feeling very uncomfortable sitting in that room mm. as they were just explaining to a room full of men and me what <sighs> women in ministry looked like. Interesting. <clears throat> and finally the professor stopped and he said, well, uh, we have the opportunity to actually hear from a woman in ministry. Lisa, would you like to say something? <laughs> As though I am now an expert on the entire subject <laughs> of women in ministry. And it was a little terrifying, uh, even though I really liked the guys in that class a lot. And uh, I, but I, I understood that in this moment, I had the ability to speak into the life of, of many future pastors. Mm. And, and my hope was that they would listen to what I had to say. So I took it very seriously and I said, the thing you need to understand is the women in your church uh, just want to use the gifts that they see the Lord has given them. Mm -hmm. and, and so when they come off as fighting for their voice to be heard, it's coming out of a place of, for the most part, not everybody, but out of a place of love and a desire to serve. It's beautiful. Um, and I said, so if there's nothing you remember other than that, please remember like that when you see women in your church who are trying to do things and to uh, kind of take authority maybe, because uh, in Protestantism, so different than in Catholicism. Of course, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I said, that's the heart. That's, that's where it's coming from. They have giftings and they want to use these giftings. They want to help. They want to serve. Uh, so, but it, so then to, to have Father Boyle, this Catholic priest, who speaks with a British accent, if you've never met him, so it feels even more ominous when you don't know him that well, um, say, Lisa, would you like to be part of this group? Uh, you have education. You have things you can say. And you're like, I, I do have education. Right. I do have things I can say. I thought, this is exactly what I was saying. Like mm -hmm. He's recognizing know. those gifts, even he, without being asked. He's, exactly. he's calling them out of you. Yes, yeah. yes. And I, I've never felt that way. Mm. I, I mean, I've had a lot of youth pastors, you know, put me on leadership teams. And, and that was always great. But I still always felt a little silenced because mm. I was a woman. And so, so when I hear people say that the Catholic Church is oppressive to women... Uh, because they won't allow female priests, for example. Right. I'm like, there that the Catholic Church, in comparison to at least the Protestant life that I lived, because I know Protestantism is hard to put in a box. Yes, it's so varied, yes. is so different. It's so different. You know, Lisa, you mentioned um, sort of the, the different structures between like the, this church you were part of, Christian Missionary mm, Alliance, yeah, and then the Catholic Church are like so vast. <laughs> It's it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges, or mm, you know, yeah. maybe even more extreme than that, uh, because all all these people that you were studying with in seminary, for example, mm -hmm. in the Protestant seminary, they're not preparing for like a life like the Catholic priesthood. They're no, preparing very yeah. much for a career, right? Yeah. Is that a correct? I mean, it's a vocation. It's a it's, ministry. It is a vocation and a ministry, but it's quite different. Right. Yeah. I'm just wondering about you know. I mentioned like most of the people who I hear making this kind of uh, accusation or claim against the mm. Catholic Church, this anti woman, are from outside the church. Now there are some in mm -hmm. the church. There are some in the church who are saying the same things, especially those advocating for women's ordination, ordination yes. as priests. 
Yes. So now that's something interesting I'd like to talk about also. <laughs> yes, please. Let's do. But I think it's interesting that, you know, most of the people I hear making this accusation are looking at the church from outside. Mm, mm-hmm. So could you speak to maybe like the differences in structure, like in the Catholic church, the priesthood yeah. is such a unique thing yes. versus yes. the role of a pastor or mm-hmm. minister. Because we, we do in the Catholic Church have plenty of women ministers mm-hmm. in all kinds of capacities. Yes. Youth ministers, you know, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, the role of priest is, is first and foremost, well, I mean, you're studying to be a priest, so please <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but it, you're a shepherd. Yeah. In a sense, yeah. that's what you are. Yeah. Um, you are a shepherd, and you're meant to shepherd your flock. Uh, and I think... Uh, when you boil the priesthood down to just that, uh, that's why a lot of women think, well, women can do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually, um, I was at work this last week and popped into the cafe in the morning. Um, I had gotten up early. was a little sleepy uh, from going to morning mass and just wanted to get some coffee and eat my breakfast and get to work. And a coworker of mine called me over and said, Lisa, Lisa. Um, And again, reminder to those listening, this is a Protestant uh, University, she said, is there ever going to be uh, female priests? And I kind of went, what? No. And my first thought was, it's 8.15 in the morning. Why are we having this conversation right now? I just want to drink some coffee and go to my desk. Uh, And she said, so wait, there's never going to be female pope. And I said, no, there shouldn't be. And she said, she she was taken aback at how confident and sure I was at saying that. And... I said, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about ability. I said, women can do, they have the ability to do all the things a priest does, um, but they don't have the authority to do that. That was not, women were not given the authority to be mm-hmm. priests. Mm-hmm. And my coworker was a little thrown off by that because again, it's different in Catholicism. Sure, and sure. I said, you know, a priest is a dispenser of the sacraments. And one of the most like, important sacraments we have as Catholics is the Eucharist. And in that room, uh, when Christ was having the first Eucharistic supper, it was the men. It was the men he was giving that supper to. He was teaching them what, what the Mass looked like, in a sense, in that moment. Uh, he was bequeathing that to these men. Uh, and if he had intended for that to be something the women did as well, then there would be women in that room. He had, right. he had plenty, plenty of women. women disciples. Yeah. Yes. Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. is very close to my heart. I love yeah. her. And she wasn't in the room. Right. It, this was for the men. This is some an authority he give, gave to them. And we know that wasn't just a cultural artifact, right? Because right. instances like Mary Magdalene sitting at his feet and wiping mm-hmm. his feet with her hair. Like, yes. this is a radical thing that others around were like, Jesus, really? Are you going to let her do that? Exactly. Like, yes. Yeah. He, <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't afraid of breaking, like, cultural stereotypes regarding men right, and women right, right. at all. Uh, but in this moment, this is what he chose to do. And my friend kind of pushed back uh, against that a little bit and said, um, well, what role do women have in the church then? Mm. And uh, I had another Catholic friend with me. She actually, I was her sponsor. She just came into the church two months ago. Oh, thanks be to God. Yeah, and she said, well, Mary's a queen. Uh-huh. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> and then, um, I said, well, uh, women have been given the authority of motherhood, and men can't do that. Right. And that, I mean, 
I was just trying to end the conversation in all honesty because I was still thinking about getting coffee and just going back to my desk. Uh, and it kind of silenced my friend a bit. And she said, well, maybe we need to finish this over lunch. And mm-hmm. I said, yes, I would love that. Please, let's finish this over lunch. And, oh, oh, I forgot. She also brought up St. Joan of Arc. She said... Uh, Your friend? Catholic yeah, my, friend? Or no, the, the non-Catholic okay. friend, yeah. She said, oh, St. Joan of Arc. Uh, you know, because I know that there's some women that are important in the church, like sure, St. Sure. Joan of Arc. And I said, oh, yeah, St. Joan of Arc. And like 50% of our saints, at least. <laughs> yeah, and several doctors of the church. 90% of all Carmelite saints. Hardly any friars have been canonized. Oh. All the nuns get canonized. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carmelite nuns are amazing. St. Teresa of Lisieux uh-huh, is one of my uh-huh, patrons. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was, I kind of laughed it off when she said St. Joan of Arc because I was like, well, yeah, she's like, you know, a really powerful warrior mm-hmm. sort of woman, but there are so many other women who had a, a more broad reach yeah. than her. And I named St. Teresa of Avila and St. Catherine of Siena. Yes. Uh, fiery women who... Right who spoke up about uh, issues they saw in the church, things that needed to change, and who, in a sense, were the next, who moved several heads. That's such an interesting analogy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, St. Catherine of Siena rebuked the Pope. She yeah. was arguing by letter with the Holy Father yeah. and convinced him to move back from France to Rome. She's like, you need to be in Rome. You're the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> this is, that's where you're so supposed she, to be. So she actually literally moved the head of the church mm-hmm. back to where he's supposed to be. Yeah. And also I'm thinking about a couple of examples, like in the Middle Ages, uh, the abbesses of monasteries, mm. of monasteries of women. A- abbots and abbesses, the men and the women, mm-hmm. were considered to be a, equal to the bishops, not in terms wow. of having the sacramental yeah. life, of course. Only the bishop is ordained. He can mm-hmm. perform you know, ordination and celebrate the Mass and these right. things. But in terms of the authority over their local area, like uh, mm-hmm. abbeys, and monasteries would have their own sort of parishes. Mm-hmm. So you'd have situations where abbesses are the superior over priests in the local oh, area. Oh, funny. And then another thing, in, even here in the United States of America, in like the 50s, this is sort of like what I've heard prior mm-hmm. to that, but the local pastor would live in fear of the mother superior of the <laughs> local convent because the nuns would run the school and the school was the center of the community. I mean, the parish, sure, but mm-hmm. more so the school. The families would be centered around Makes there. Sense. So the pastor would tread very lightly. He wouldn't want to, you know, offend the mother superior. She, she really had a lot more power than he did. Mm. Not in the sense of the sacramental life, but right. in the sense of the authority in the community. And I would bring that back to almost that authority of motherhood. I agree. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. because... and. I feel like it was, I'm going to blame the Holy Spirit for that even coming out of my mouth in that conversation because it was after I left, I was thinking more about it going, yeah, yeah. like all, all women, whether they have children physically or not, have been given this ability to be mothers mm-hmm. and have been given this motherhood mm-hmm. authority. Right. Uh, and because there's so many women out there who are nuns, who are consecrated virgins, who do not have physical children, but the the number of spiritual children they have is so much more vast. And sometimes their spiritual children are priests. Yes. The the influence that women have had in the church. Now I'm thinking of like St. Clair, you know, and her Mm -hmm. work with St. Francis. Uh, I think... St. Teresa is a great example as well. You brought her up earlier. Right. Teresa of Avila. Yeah. She founded... In her Carmelite reform, she founded the reform branch of the friars as well as mm-hmm. the nuns. Mm-hmm. And she appointed St. John of the Cross to do that work. Right. But she was la madre. She was the head. St. <laughs> John would answer to her, you know? It's, yeah. I, I just, 
Yeah, I, I often think we assume, especially in this day and age, that title yes, means exactly. authority, mm-hmm. and it's it's just not the case. Right, right. I would go back to when you were speaking about the priesthood earlier, yeah. you, you mentioned the role of the shepherd, mm. uh, which is absolutely, yeah, that's essential. But even more foundational is like, what's the identity of a priest? Mm. The identity is spiritual fatherhood. Mm. And, and then his role as a shepherd comes from that. Like there, there's the three um, offices of the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you hear priest, prophet, and king, yeah. or the roles of you know sanctifying, governing, and uh, which one did I forget? Priest, prophet... And uh, king. Uh, king would be governing. I'm trying to think oh. of what a verb would be for prophet. <laughs> Prophesying. <laughs> preaching. 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 Oh, Evangelizing. Yeah. Oh, preaching. okay. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 So sanctifying the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Preaching, like teaching the faith and bringing people in. And then governing, the role, which is the role of shepherding, like mm-hmm. leading the local community. He's the one to make the decisions. Where are we going to go? Takes the long view. But all of that comes from his identity as a spiritual father. Mm. Uh, mm. Yes. Right. Which is, it's conferred on him at ordination. It's a sacramental character that's given to the priest through the grace of the Holy Spirit at ordination. But that's calling out something essential in his masculinity. Like you were talking about how a woman yeah. by nature has this, this motherhood, even if she doesn't have biological children. Mm-hmm. And there's something in the nature of a man that's like, that's, directed toward fatherhood mm-hmm. in his, his essence. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how are you going to live that out? Well, some men most live that out by having children, biological children. And that's what calls it out of them. But then for the priest, it's brought out through the Holy Spirit in the life of teaching the people, presenting the, celebrating the sacraments, giving them God's grace through material things, through the blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, through confession, all this, and through shepherding the flock, governing mm-hmm. the people. So I love that what you're talking about, spiritual motherhood, because it's really, it's complementary. Mm-hmm. It, just, just as in the human family, we have the right. mother and the father. So in the faith, the Catholic faith, which is beautifully designed by our Lord himself, mm. and this was John Paul II's argument for why we mm. can't have women priests, is like, mm-hmm. I think maybe you mentioned this to your friend. He said, I don't have the authority <laughs> to make women priests. I don't... I didn't make up this mm-hmm. church. Like, this is given to me, you know? So in his letter uh, on, on women priests, he defined, he definitively proclaimed for all time so that there would be no further controversy, although not everyone's gotten <laughs> the message yet. But he said, look, I, I'm setting it down, infallible truth, that the church does not have the authority to do this. We can only mm-hmm. do what's been given to us by right. Jesus because he constituted the church. Right. But I love the idea that, the reality, this is the way that he did it. He yeah. set up... The priesthood for men, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to have these this role of leading the flock, mm-hmm. but then also for women to have this complementary and essential role mm-hmm. in the community of motherhood. Yes. Yeah. And if you think about it, and and even just a family. Yeah. Uh, you know, the father is the one, uh, you know, historically who who works, who gets all the mm-hmm. the. Uh, gets the job done in a sense, you know, brings in brings in the money, and the mother is the one who kind of takes care of the details at home. Yeah. And yeah. I think there's so many parishes out there where the priest <laughs> would be like, "This parish is run by the women. Absolutely, they are taking care of this place." Most parishes that yeah. I've, that I've seen. Exactly, yeah. the priest is getting the job done. Uh-huh. He's he, he's administering the sacraments, and right. the women are the one who are right focusing on right. the details. Absolutely, and creating that, turning that church into a home. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. In roles like, especially sacristan, parish sec. 
secretaries, yeah. working in the offices, mm-hmm. also the ministries, like often uh, serving on liturgy committees or parish councils, yeah. youth ministers. I know lots of women youth ministers who are mm-hmm. so effective yeah. because of that spiritual motherhood. It's just incredible. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I do. I, I still need to ask you my question. Yes. Um, but I do have one more thought on this uh, regarding my experience oh, entering into the Catholic Church as a woman. Uh, after we got this youth, uh, it was like a young adult ministry up and uh-huh. running at St. Stephen's. Uh, we would get together and we'd uh, have adoration, confession, and then we'd usually hang out and either play games or have deep theological conversations. <laughs> <laughs> One or the other. One depend- or the other. Yeah. It depended. Uh, they rarely actually overlapped. <laughs> <laughs> but there was one night in particular, I remember I still wasn't Catholic yet. And uh, it was the feast of, oh golly, I think it was St. Teresa of Avila, actually. Yes, it was. And uh, do you know what feast day that is? October 15th. Okay, yeah. So sure enough, yeah, I was not Catholic yet. (laughs) Uh, And so Father Anderson uh, was the vicar at the time, Uh, right? That's what he was? I think so. Yeah, Yeah. before he was the pastor. Okay. So Father Bo was a priest, uh, the pastor, and uh, Father Anderson was the vicar. And he was kind of in charge of hanging out with us young adults because Father Boyle liked to go to bed early. (laughs) And and so Father Anderson said, you know, it's the feast of St. Teresa of Avila. So let's read some of her writings. And and so he said, you know, oh yeah. So he had all these books written by her. And he said, you know, if if some of you have read some of her stuff, pick a, pick a part that you love. Let's read it. Let's talk about it. And I sat there not physically with my mouth agape, but, but mentally, because um, I had never heard a man uh, invite others to read a female theologian wow. in, in my life. Wow. In my life. See, that's so amazing to yeah. hear. Yeah. And I, and I sat there, like, soaking in her words yeah. and thinking, <laughs> I mean, what she's saying is amazing, but I'm more amazed in this moment <laughs> that we're even listening to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That she's this woman who has had a significant impact on the Catholic Church and that I'm being encouraged to listen to her. I, I have my master's mm-hmm. from a Protestant seminary, and we never read female theologians. <laughs> that is so incredible. So, uh, yeah. So that was the, the last thought I had just really had on that, my, my female experience from Protestantism to Catholicism. Mm. Uh, but I'm going to change gears because, okay. well, it's a, it's a bit of a changing gears. Uh, you brought up the Youth Synod. Uh, right. You brought up this culture of uh, this generation, your generation yes. uh, of authenticity and this desire to, well, what the church is saying is the youth want to be uh, listened to oh, what was it? You, you said it all so much more eloquently um, Oh, they want to be accompanied. Yes. This is the language right now that, Yes, they want to be accompanied and not talked down to mm-hmm. uh, I don't know that I know how to phrase my question. Uh, well, I mean, no, I do. Okay, as a, as a young person, you're in your early 20s. I am. Uh, and you are a convert as well. I am. So you have experienced... Uh, well, you have quite an experience, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks be to God. Yeah. Uh, as a young person, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Uh, I had a couple of thoughts as the youth synod was going on. Mm. Um, 
just a couple of weeks ago, you know, the First Things magazine, which is a, a journal that I follow, mm -hmm. they were posting uh, an excerpt every day or a short article called, I think it was called Excerpts from the Youth Synod or something like that, or Letters from the Youth Synod maybe. Um, they had a correspondent there, so they were detailing what's going on, but they also, each day during the Synod, had a letter from either a single young person or like a group of young people somewhere in the world who maybe hadn't been able to make it to Rome. Mm. So they wrote this letter and first things was like publishing it and passing it on mm -hmm. to the Synod Fathers. So I thought that was great. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing was, you know, all the official talk from the Synod that was published, the different uh, interviews with some of the bishops and things, things that were coming out in the media, was all this language about accompaniment. Young people want to be accompanied. Mm. Young people uh, don't want the truth to be presented to them from on high in this way, they want to enter into a dialogue, they, they want to be listened to, they mm -hmm. don't want to be preached to so much. But yet, these young people, okay, my generation, millennials from around the world, I remember this one girl from Australia, one from South Africa who were writing in, and they were all saying essentially the same thing, uh, which totally resonated with me, with my experience. Mm. They're like, what we want from the church is for the church to teach us the Catholic faith. We want the church to tell us like what it's all about. Uh, so they weren't so much asking for the church to listen to them or dialogue with them, not to say that these are bad things, yeah. okay? But the question of this synod was like, how are we going to reach young people? <laughs> how are we gonna bring them in? Yeah. How are we gonna assist them to discern their vocations and like live the life uh, you know, of, of fulfillment and, and, and of a evangelical effectiveness that God desires for them? And resoundingly, these young people from all across the world were saying, like, what we want from the church is for you to teach us. Mm. What we want from the church is for you to present the Catholic faith, the faith of the ages to us, like unapologetically. <laughs> so very much that, that was my experience when I was coming into the church. Um, a big thing for me was the ministry of Catholic Answers, Catholic.com. <laughs> yes. I don't know if you there, yeah. use them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like the first thing I ever encountered about Catholicism was from Catholic Answers. Mm -hmm. um, it was an article about original sin. And I remember I read this article. It was so foreign to anything else I'd ever heard in my right. life. Now, I didn't grow up in a really strongly um, doctrinal Protestant background. It was mm -hmm. kind of a lukewarm, touchy-feely Okay. Yeah. kind of Protestant uh, background. So at least that was my experience as a kid growing up. So um, then when we left that church, I kind of went through new age beliefs and uh, with a little sprinkling of Buddhism and mm -hmm. Taoism and kind of a syncretistic postmodern, you know, build your own spirituality. Like a cocktail. Cocktail <laughs> of whatever's floating around in the culture that mm. I was kind of putting together. It was all very subjective. Mm -hmm. So when I read this article from Catholic Answers, which is teaching about original sin in like stark terms, it's not confrontational. It's not like, oh, you're, you're all going to hell unless you're baptized. Right. But it's just telling what's the Catholic Church teach about this, that yeah, because of the sin of our first parents, our human nature is objectively and intrinsically disordered. We're born with this kind of propensity to do evil, not to do the good that we might desire to do, but to do the evil that our nature inclines us to. Mm -hmm. And that there's no way out of it but by God's grace alone, which elevates us up, restores us to the glory that he originally intended for us. And even higher than that, like makes us his sons. This incredibly beautiful picture 
mm. of the universe. But yet, it's beautiful in what it promises, but it's stark in what it says about the reality. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard anything like this. I mean, it was so brand new. Mm. I remember thinking like, first of all, it's crazy that anyone believes this. <laughs> like, it was just so, I could yeah. not imagine someone actually not because I thought it was totally unbelievable. On the contrary, like it, it sort of constantly out of me, like it was resonating. Mm -hmm. But I just couldn't fathom that someone would really believe it. But at the same time though, what it was resonating with in my heart was like, this seems to explain the way that reality is mm -hmm. on a deeper level than anything else I've ever heard. And like, even if maybe this isn't the truth, it's somehow, it, it's, it's in harmony with the truth, you mm -hmm. know? Like, there's something about this that makes sense. And so I just, uh, from that point on, I, I read a lot more Catholic Answers and I read St. Augustine. And eventually I went to a mass, my first mass. And at that mass, I had a profound experience of the Holy Spirit mm. of like giving me this, this deep interior consolation, a feeling of being loved. And that was all on the love of the heart. Mm. I had to do all this head work <laughs> first, you know, to get to a place I could receive that. Mm -hmm. Okay. But uh, Lisa's laughing because she knows I'm writing a paper about this right now. So. <laughs> it's true. I'm like, and there we go. <laughs> Homework is working. It's happening right. Yeah, I'm going to transcribe this later. Turn it in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so think about my own experience and think about what all these other young Catholics were writing. Like, we want the truth. Yeah, I, I wanted the truth. Mm. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able necessarily to say it the way that these other young Catholics are saying it now yeah. at that time. But it's what I wanted. And thanks be to God, there was some ministry in the church, Catholic Answers, who was like teaching it and making it really accessible and that I could just stumble upon it by, mm -hmm. you know, my randomly surfing the internet. Somehow the Holy Spirit led me there. So I just think, you know, you mentioned about authenticity. Yeah. Um, my generation, I think, we, we've grown up in this world where we're saturated with images, advertising, the internet, um, where you can be anybody you want to be. You can make your own identity. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, I think we have a real sense of suspicion. We go through the world with like um, a real lack of trust. I mean, it goes beyond a lack of trust. It's like almost a pathological lack of trust. Like yeah. An inability to trust. Because Cynical, almost. Yeah. It's like an, a deep, inborn cynicism yeah. deep down in the heart. Because this is what we've been raised in. It's in the air. It's in the water. Like, is there anyone out there that I really know who they are and they'll know who I am? Is or is everyone just possible? catering and pandering exactly. to me? Exactly. Is everyone make... just trying to sell something? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we talk about authenticity, I think, you know, that's why, like, my generation, I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, some of us are uh, starting families now and things like that, buying houses, like... Uh, Older generations always make fun of millennials because they're all about organic, local <laughs> produce. And, you know, we see yep. this all the time in Portland, like yep. handmade goods, artisanal, yep. whatever. It's, <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous sometimes. Like, oh, I have my artisanal avocado toast. <laughs> but there's, I think there's a goodness in, at the core of that desire because it's looking for what's authentic. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't just want what's mass produced. I yeah. want what someone else made for me by hand with love. And they're giving it to me. Like, we're looking for love. We're looking for what's real. Mm. That, that does, the fact that that desire exists is huge for evangelization. Mm -hmm. Because it, at its essence, that's what the church is. Like, who is that author who said about the Catholic Church, here comes everybody? Oh, I don't know. 
Uh, some British author. I, I always think it's Chesterton, and it's not. I forget who it is, really. So we can rule out so Chesterton. We can rule him out. I don't know who. But, like, here comes everybody. Mm. I just think, you know, the Catholic Church, like, we need to be authentically ourselves. Mm. Um, speaking, right now I'm speaking as the church. Like, church, be yourself. Yeah. <laughs> be who Jesus founded you to yeah. be. You are, the inst- you, are, you are the seed of God's kingdom, mm-hmm. which is supposed to spread out over the whole world. Mm-hmm. So let God rule. Uh, within you, like speak the truth, speak it boldly, proclaim the scriptures, the gospel, Jesus' teaching in its fullness. Like, don't be afraid, don't try yeah. to pander to the modern culture. Because if we try to sacrifice who we are, we're never going to win anybody, especially mm-hmm. not my generation, over right. into the church. Oh, yeah. They're going to see right through that and they're going to walk away. Yeah. And tied with that, too, I think what we're seeing, like at parishes like St. Stephen's in Portland right. or Five Wounds Parish here in. Uh, Santa Clara, where Elisa and I went for a beautiful mass today. Mm, it's amazing. So, uh, did you see a lot of old people at that mass, or no. were mostly young people? Yeah, I, there was a. It was a mixture a, of families. And, it was a mixture, but there yeah. was definitely a lot of young people. A lot of young people up serving. And right, yeah, tons of servers. Mm-hmm. And St. Stephen's too in Portland. We mm-hmm. have. The last time I was there, we had almost 30 altar servers on a Sunday. Is it up to 50 now? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But it definitely uh, depends on the Sunday. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the traditional liturgy of the church. Okay. Now, this might be controversial or a little political um, oh, probably to, to speak about. It's okay. But, you know, I mean, the liturgy of the church, is, it was codified for us at the Council of Trent in the 1500s, mm-hmm. but basically it hadn't changed to that point since shortly after the time of the Apostolic Fathers. We're talking about like 3rd century BC. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's AD, not BC. 3rd <laughs> century AD in the Latin church up until the Council of Trent. Then it was codified, and then it was the same around the whole church mm-hmm. up until the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. This is our liturgy, our patrimony, you know, the, the, what sometimes called now the Latin Mass, mm-hmm. or the extraordinary form of the Mass. Now, n- not to say there's anything wrong with the ordinary form of the Mass, mm-hmm. as was given us by the Council, right. but, you know, in the ordinary form of the Mass, what's most of what you're seeing? The priest is standing up there. Either he's standing at the altar looking at you, mm-hmm. or he's standing at the ambo looking at you, and he's talking. Whether he's reading the Eucharistic right. prayers, reading the scriptures, reading the gospel, reading his homily, it's all up here. I'm pointing to my head. It's all, it's all up in the intellect. He's speaking to you, and you're listening. It's didactic. Mm-hmm. It's like you're in a classroom. Or a lecture. And can almost feel like he's pandering. And you. it can feel like he's pandering. He's not being exactly. genuine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what do we see in the extraordinary form of the Mass? About 90% of the time. Just the back of his head. <laughs> back of, he's not even looking at me. Beautiful. I, I don't know what it's called, but the beautiful. The um, chasuble. The chasuble. Oh, some of them are just I know, breathtaking. Yeah. So you're, you're not really even in a dialogue with the priest. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you're not really in the ordinary form, but it can seem like you are. Yeah. You're talking to the priest. and He's talking back. You story form the mass. It's very, very clear. You're in a line. The priest is at the head of the line, mm-hmm. and you're back there behind him. You're all going one direction. You're going yeah. to God. When the priest speaks, he's speaking to God. Mm-hmm. When you speak, you're speaking to God. And it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with us. Yeah. And well, I mean, it so, does. It, it does. It's not about. But we're us. not making it up. We are it's, not the central focus. Exactly. We exactly. are not the priest's central focus. No. Like no. All of our focus should be on the Lord. Exactly. And is on the Lord. I think that's beautiful. You had a great conversation the other day with a Trader Joe's oh, checkout clerk in Portland, right? Yes. 
Oh my God. I was going to say, don't even get me started, but you just did. <laughs> Purposefully got me started. Yeah. I was in Trader Joe's, uh, doing a weekly shopping and I happened to be wearing my sweatshirt, uh, my St. Stephen's sweatshirt. And, uh, I noticed right right away as she started checking uh, on my groceries that she looked at my sweatshirt, and I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> I, this is Portland. This is the Hollywood district. Yeah. I have no idea what the response is going to be, but she mm. sees I am wearing a big old Catholic sweatshirt. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, she said, St. Stephen's, huh? And I said, yeah. And she said, what, uh, 41st and Taylor? And I said, Yeah. And she goes, you guys have a Latin mass. And I'm just, at this point, like, this girl knows her stuff. Maybe Uh she's a local Catholic that I don't know. Um, I mean, the church is big. Uh And and I said, yeah. And she goes, oh, yeah, I... You guys have Latin Mass. I I went once, but I got there late and wasn't able to stay. Anyway, we ended up talking uh, as apparently I was buying a lot of groceries because it felt like our <laughs> conversation went on forever. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Uh, and she was saying how she grew up uh, in the Catholic Church before Vatican II. She remembers the Latin Mass. She remembers loving it, and she loved how it wasn't about her. It was it was about something bigger than her. Mm-hmm. And that when Vatican II happened and the changes started coming out around that time, she and her family ended up moving away from the parish they had grown up in. And she said, with all the changes that happened, her family just stopped going to Mass. And she she said, you know, she hadn't really gone back since. She was a feminist now and a historian. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the, the Latin Mass still appealed to her. And so that's why she sought out St. Stephen's, uh, because... Uh, she wanted to go something that was a. Th- she wanted to go to something that was ethereal, that was mm. otherworldly, and that wasn't about her. And those yeah, were her yeah. words. And she said, also as a historian, she understood the significance behind everything done at a Latin Mass, and she she understood the the richness of it and the need for it uh, to remain uh, in this world. And I mean, by the end of the conversation, we shook hands, uh, and, and I said, I hope you come back, and please say yeah. hi if you come back. St. Stephen's, she said she definitely would, um, uh, because she'd be excited to be on my turf since I was on her <laughs> turf at Trader, Trader Joe's. Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, I, the thing that like impacted me as I was leaving Trader Joe's mm. was how sad I was for her generation mm-hmm. uh, that uh, was in the midst of that liturgical reform and uh, lost something. And, and didn't quite know what to do with the new form. Yeah. Uh, and it, it didn't feel otherworldly anymore. It felt... And, and I think what they were trying to do with the council was to make it more personal, to make it mm-hmm. feel more um, reachable, tangible. I think so, yeah. 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 Uh, but, but so many people left because they didn't want something that was that. They, they wanted yeah. worship of God to be... Mm-hmm worship of God, ethereal, otherworldly, as to use her words. I love that language, yeah, ethereal or, or even transcendent. Transcendent, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. There's kind of this paradox with the Second Vatican Council. Um, I think as a church, we're still maybe trying to find our feet. And yeah, I hear I'd people, agree. I hear people say, like, it takes about 100 years for a council to really be absorbed into the life of the church. So we'll be dead. So <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe we'll still be around. I might be dead. 
<laughs> it's been 50 years so far, give or take. Okay. About 50 some years. Oh, never mind. I'm selling myself short. I'll still be alive. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. Maybe we'll live to see mm. the day when, when this is all totally integrated. Worked out. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, you were mentioning uh, the desires of the Second Vatican Council, especially with regard to the liturgy, mm-hmm. to make this more accessible to the people. Accessible, that's the word. This, this is what the Council Fathers sort of were trying to do, I think. And you see some of the changes that were requested in, for example, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution of the Liturgy, mm. where they asked for the Mass to be made available in the vernacular languages. Mm-hmm. Now, they never wanted to get rid of Latin. They said Latin should have pride of, pl- pride of place, the Latin language should be preserved. In particular, the Gregorian chants of the church, mm. which is our rich patrimony, should be yeah. preserved. But we can use vernacular language, in particular for the readings, so that people can begin to be more familiar with our great treasury of sacred scripture, which yeah. is a great thing. Yes. So we, we can all agree about that, at mm-hmm. least. And permission was also given to celebrate Mass facing the people as kind of what's called ad experimentum, an experiment <laughs> in certain places, which, of course, totally exploded. Yeah. yeah, so now that's almost all you find in many parishes. Mm-hmm. So these things were like, it's just interesting, you know, in the documents, the Council Fathers were taking kind of hesitant, mm. small steps, yeah. but what they wanted was to make the liturgy more accessible so mm-hmm. people could begin to understand what's going on mm-hmm. really you know penetrate to the depths of some of the mysteries of these beautiful prayers of the scriptures understand better the sacrifice and uh, I, I think what happened as a result is maybe with a, a you know with a taste of this new freedom in the liturgy <laughs> people took it way way too far and given the the time and given the time the to 1960s yeah. uh, revolutionary time all over the western world people were running with stuff all all over the place (laughs) oh yeah so we saw a lot of experimentation beyond what the ad experimentum maybe had had anticipated um and i think we're still we're not just trying to find our feet as a church but we're dealing with the fallout of that i mean uh, you know obviously i wasn't around at that time but as one now who's in priestly formation i sort of bear the brunt of the responsibility i feel like mm. for what our forefathers had done they really betrayed the trust of the people mm. in bringing about these changes overnight with no preparation with no catechesis yeah i've heard you know lay people and priests now like a priest i'm thinking of who was an altar server when these changes happened he said one Sunday they were serving what we now would call the extraordinary form and they mm-hmm. knew it by heart. The next Sunday the priest came in and said now everything is going to be different. We're going mm. to celebrate the Mass in English facing the people and you know everything that he had grown up with changed in the space of a week mm-hmm. without any kind of, of preparation at all. So yeah. I, I can totally understand why so many of that generation left the church because it's like if what we thought was sacred can be thrown out overnight, Ugh. then what's the basis for anything? Yeah. And that brings us back yes, to the does. topic of authenticity we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. And truth. And truth, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, because like the greatest thing about the Catholic Church, well, I can't say that, but there's so many great <laughs> one things. One of the greatest but, like, things. Yeah, one of the greatest things is we know, we have Jesus' guarantee mm. that the truth, which the Church proclaims in every age and in every place throughout the world, is not going to pass away. Because right. God himself is truth. The truth that the church teaches is not something that like someone made up somewhere along the way, mm-hmm. and which is why JP2 couldn't change the truth about women priests. Right. Like It's all a package. Jesus gave it to us. 
we're handing it on, mm-hmm. on and on and on until the end of the world. Uh, and then we'll be united with truth himself, mm. the person Jesus Christ May forever. May he come quickly. May he come quickly. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, so, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about any of this? Authenticity, uh, evangelization? I can't think of anything other than what I've already said. Yeah. It's such a pleasure to, to talk to you about this. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned I'm writing this paper about the new evangelization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and about, about faith. So the topic that I'm writing about is uh, two different ideas of faith. Is faith primarily intellectual assent, which is kind of the traditional position of the church from St. Thomas Aquinas on? Or is faith, as maybe like someone like Pope Benedict would explain it, is faith more this embrace, the whole person embracing Christ? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the f- Intellect, yes, but also the will and the passions and everything that makes us human beings mm-hmm. involved in this embrace. Um, so I'm kind of wrestling with these questions right now um, on a theoretical level, but also in like day-to-day life when I go out into the world, of what's the most effective way to spread the gospel, to evangelize? Um, so is it necessary first to like correct philosophical misunderstandings, mm. which there are so many of in our culture. Holy like mackerel. our culture doesn't even believe in truth. How are you going to preach the truth? <laughs> if people are like, well, that's your truth. But my truth is yeah. I'm actually a dog. You yeah. know, you, you think I'm a woman, but no, I'm a dog. Yeah. Which I wish I was joking, but I just saw on the news the other day about someone who in fact was hoping to change her legal identity to that of a dog. Yes. So, I mean, this is the reality that we live yeah. in. Yeah. So uh, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Like evangelization, you're you're in a Protestant yeah. context right now, a university. Mm-hmm. How do you live out your Catholic faith in a way that you try to be open and, mm-hmm. and bring people in? Uh, I th- I think kind of what you've been talking about mm-hmm. uh, that idea of is it the is it the whole body or is it the head first and then the whole body? Oh, I like that it, way of putting it. In a yeah. sense, follows. Yeah. And what I've found is, and I I can only even hearken back to my own experience, and you even mentioned it in your experience, is the the head. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of obstacles that the head kind of has to overcome Mm -hmm. before the heart is ready and comfortable and open uh, to receive what the head has kind of agreed is safe. Uh, and maybe, maybe I don't know, now I'm thinking about it in, in regards to this generational thing and not wanting to be sold. Uh, yeah. And I, right. I think especially coming from Protestantism, uh, there's such a wide variety of ways that Protestantism um, talks about the Catholic Church. Mm. Uh, I've, I've met Protestants who uh, have been raised to feel totally comfortable with the Catholic Church. Uh, that was not my experience Usually, I, when one of my friends said he wanted to be Catholic, I told him he was a heretic, and that was a horrible idea, uh-huh. and that he was just going to be a worship, worshiper of Mary. Uh, and so, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that, that is more, um, when I was coming into the church, for example, that's what I had to battle. I had yeah. to battle those yeah. uh, ideas that I had about the Catholic church. I had to seek what was truth, mm-hmm. what was true about the church. 
uh, I had to, in a sense, ask the church herself. I got tired of hearing what everybody had to say about her. I wanted to hear what she had to say. And I actually mm. got teary-eyed reading the catechism for the first time mm. because I yeah. thought, this is beautiful. Right. It's so simple. Like the first paragraph. Oh, it's just great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and I remember being so afraid because I was either afraid that I was going to love it I was genuinely afraid I was going to love it or afraid that I was going to hate it. <laughs> and I liked what I was seeing in the Catholic Church. So I thought, oh, please, please let the catechism be great. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that you were you were coming to it almost with that attitude of, mm-hmm. I want this to be the truth. Because yeah. at a certain point, I got to that, that position as well, reading yeah. Catholic answers, reading all this stuff. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm not... Like convert. I'm not a Catholic yet. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't even gone to mass yet. Probably when this <laughs> began to happen within me, mm-hmm. I was thinking, I really want this to be true. Mm. So I, I was reading more and more, and you know, you, brought, I'm sure, found the same thing reading the mm-hmm. Catechism, mm-hmm. Um, reading other sources. You can just read about like the most random, apparently disconnected things about the Catholic Church, but they're all connected. Oh, very much so. And the yeah. more you read, no matter what it is, if you're reading about the church's position on, you know, uh, on, on abortion, mm-hmm. or you're reading about original sin, or Mary, or the mm-hmm. Mass, whatever, it's all part of this unified picture, and you're just like filling in the blanks, putting pieces together, and like, yeah. wow, this is incredible. Yes. As it's all coming together, you're like, I really hope that this is the reality. Well, and... Uh, facing truth and letting it change you, I think, was mm. a big one for me. That, that's what I had to wrestle with. Is I think of uh, like the doctrine of purgatory, for example. I got into a very large argument, complete with like full of tears, mm. uh, upset about the doctrine of purgatory, and uh, and I had to just kind of take that to the Lord and say, you know, in a sense, what what is truth? true about this what where is truth uh in this because uh all i want to do is believe what feels comfortable for me Mm. um and right now this is uncomfortable but in that process i realize that sometimes truth is uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and it almost makes it more beautiful uh in the end yes and and you know as much as my head needed to process a lot of this stuff uh, the Lord was there to kind of speak to my heart in the midst of all of it. So for purgatory, for example, you know, I had to do some research on it. I had to understand. My head needed to understand. Uh, but when I finally took it to the Lord, because I, I didn't quite know how I felt about it, uh, he said, uh, Lisa, if you continue to follow me, uh, then you need to trust that eventually you will see me. Does it matter when? Wow. And I thought, I guess not really. <laughs> That's beautiful. In a sense, like you, yeah. you need to trust me. Yes. With yes. your eternity. I love that. And with I when that. I decide that we will see each other face yeah. to face. And hmm. and so I had to come to a place where I was okay with that truth changing me, instead of hmm. me trying to change it so that I felt more comfortable. I really love that story. That's great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks be to God for that. Yes. Honestly. I liked living it. Uh-huh. That sounds pretty great. <laughs> Except for the tears part uh-huh. at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think something essential in what you experienced there is, like maybe we were talking about earlier, 
don't remember for sure. But this move from uh, like a hermeneutic, you could say, of skepticism to mm. a hermeneutic of trust. Yes, um, yes, yes. You know, so uh, like hermeneutics, a way of reading a text is mm-hmm. what it literally means, of course. Uh, way, like a, the way that you approach a text uh, or a tradition. Mm-hmm. So Pope Benedict XVI would always speak about, with regard to our liturgy and the Catholic faith like in general, we need to have a hermeneutic of continuity, not a hermeneutic of rupture. Hmm. What he meant was, like, the church now, we need to read in continuity with her whole tradition, all the way back to the apostles. We didn't, like, sing a new church into being in 1965. Right. We're still the same church. The same church that we've always been, back to the time of the apostles, to the time of Christ himself. So, Lisa, I thought that we could end by reading the first paragraph from the Catechism, which oh, we, we referenced yes. earlier in the show. Yes, please. So you have that paragraph memorized, right? Practically. Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so why don't, would you like to read it for us from memory? She, uh, she has it here right in front of her. <laughs> no, no, no. I really like the way you pronounce it, things, so okay. I actually prefer you read it. All right. So... Page... Not because I'm a woman. Oh. I'm deferring to the, to the man. Oh, well, I just presumed. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> so here we are, page one, paragraph one, Catechism of the Catholic Church. The heading says, The Life of Man to Know and Love God. And here's, here's the paragraph. Mm. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man, to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men, scattered and divided by sin, into the unity of his family, the church. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son as Redeemer and Savior, In his Son and through him, he invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, his adopted children, and thus heirs of his blessed life. What more needs to be said? Amen. (laughs) Paragraph one. The rest of the catechism is all commentary. (laughs) That's the heart of it. Mm -hmm. That's it. Well, Lisa, any closing remarks you'd like to make or anything else you'd like to say? I don't think so. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I've enjoyed, uh, I I hope that those who listen, uh, even if it's just your mom. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, mom. (laughs) I hope that they enjoy, uh, and not just enjoy, I hope they're blessed by it, because I've I've felt blessed by it. I hope so, too, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's been a blessing to me to have this conversation, Mm -hmm. and hopefully it will be for any of you out there who are listening. Mm -hmm. So let's close together by praying the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. May the Lord bless us, protect us from all evil, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Matthew.